Good evening. Hey, how are you guys? So good to see you. Um, it's been a long time since the last, the last gathering. Um, so I'm glad you're here. Coming in hot. So uh, I, I'm just going to keep talking. So I was reading recently about watermelons being grown in Japan. Okay? There's this group of farmers in a specific region in Japan who needed to address a couple issues. One issue was that Japanese refrigerators tend to be rather small. And so they would grow these beautiful watermelons, except uh, people wouldn't buy them because they would take up their entire refrigerator, right? Um, another problem was that watermelons really are difficult to ship because they're not very uniform. You know, they roll, <laughs> they're round or they're oblong or they're different shapes and sizes. And so um, packing them into containers with identical numbers um, was somewhat difficult. And so they decided in order to solve this problem, they would grow square watermelons. Yeah, and it, it fixed the problem, right? They're, they're these cute little compact watermelons. They fit in their um, in the refrigerators just fine. They were great for packing because they're square, right? You just like count, you can put the same number in every box. The problem uh, well, there were a couple problems. One was that uh, they don't come cheap. So these sell in Japan for anywhere between like $80 and $150. Um, the other problem is that they uh, really didn't taste good. <laughs> okay? Um, so the way that you grow a watermelon that is square, it starts out very similar to the way that you would grow a normal watermelon. You'd plant a seed in the ground. And then as it would begin, begin to grow, the, when the plant kind of um, develops, a farmer would put this clear box around the plant as like a mold. And so it begins to grow, and eventually it pushes into the sides of the box, and it squeezes into the corners of the box until it takes on the form of this mold. In order to keep it that shape, the farmer has to pick it before it's ripe. So it's never allowed to fully ripen. It's never allowed to fully mature. And so when you cut into these watermelons, you know that taste? Like, it's like this juicy, delicious, sweet taste of summer that you think of when you think of watermelons is not what they experienced. <laughs> uh, they stayed yellow on the inside mostly and just tasted like nothing. The Apostle Paul uh, in the New Testament draws attention to a mold that the culture tries to use to shape us. If you have a Bible tonight, if you would pull it out to Romans chapter 12, that's where Allison read from this evening. Also, just an announcement, um, we have, CSF has lots of Bibles, like cases of Bibles. If you don't own a Bible here on campus, if you don't have one here, we would love for you to take them. Um, they're on the back table. Take one, you can get up now if you want to, or take one before you leave tonight. Um, please make sure that you have a Bible here at UIS. So Romans chapter 12, um, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul begins with a serious, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, my friends. And then this phrase, in view of God's mercy. So he's telling us, like, this is the filter through which we want to look at this issue. In view of God's mercy, in light of God's mercy, he's saying because of the gospel, because of the fact that God loves you, because he made a way for you to be reconciled with him, because he made a way for you to be his friend, in light of that, offer your whole lives and your bodies to him as an act of worship. And then in verse 2, he says, do not conform. So the original Greek word that's translated in verse 2 is susematizo. And it means to conform to a pattern or to a mold. And Paul says there's a pattern or a mold that the world wants to fit you inside of. Like a glass box that it's trying to shape you inside of. And Paul says, do not conform. Now, when I was in college, um, that's when I kind of really took my faith seriously and began reading my Bible. And uh, I was taught that all of the Bible is important. But if there is a command in Scripture, that's especially important. Like, that's something that you should take notice of. And so here we see not just like the Ten Commandments, not that kind of command, but grammatically, you know, like somebody says, stop, that's a command. If you look at a command, you should pay a special attention to it. And this is a command. Do not conform. See, God doesn't want us stunted and molded into a form that looks like the world. But he wants us to be changed into something else, like allowed to mature and ripen and become juicy and delicious, something that looks a lot more like Jesus. So the thing um, with the shape of this world is that we often don't even recognize that it's happening. You know, when, when the farmer puts the mold around the little teeny tiny watermelon, it's not even touching it. It's just there. But slowly, as the watermelon grows, it starts to hit those sides and the top and the corners. Um, In the same way, if we're not intentionally choosing to follow the patterns of Jesus, we may not even be aware that we're being shaped by the world. So we're starting a four-week series tonight called Life on Purpose, Creating a Rule of Life. And as we start this new semester, it's a really good time to kind of reevaluate like who we are, who we want to be, like what kind of people do we want to be? What are our priorities? And as followers of Jesus, are we going to follow the patterns of this world or are we going to follow the pattern of Jesus? One way that Jesus followers have done this um, throughout the ages for centuries is by creating an intentional rule of life. And that may not be familiar to you, that phrase. Um, The original, uh, the first example of a Christian rule of life came in about 300 AD. And that was a group of Christians called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And they lived in Egypt in the desert, which is why they got the name. 
Um, and this group of believers, they wanted to be intentional about just creating a way of living their lives that would look more like Jesus. Probably the most familiar rule of life came from St. Benedict, who wanted his community of monks to be intentional about living out the patterns of Jesus' life. So this may seem new to us, this idea of a rule of life. It's not new to believers throughout the ages. The English word rule, I'm just going to tell you, can maybe make some of us bristle just a little bit. My mom is 76. I I need to know what years my parents were born, but she's about 76. Um, But she's feisty. One of the things that she says is, um, she says, you know, you're either a rule follower or you're a rule breaker. And I would probably say that I lean towards the rule breaker just a little bit. (laughs) Um, And so that can make us kind of think, oh, I don't know if I want to follow a rule. That's not what this is talking about here. In this context, it's a little bit different. Um, This word rule comes from the Latin word, which means a, a straight, it's regula is the Latin word, and it means a straight piece of wood, like a ruler or a pattern that guides things, right? Um, if I'm trying to draw a straight line, I need a ruler to, to give me that straight line, to, find, to give me a pattern. Um, so a rule of life is something that a community can create, like the Benedictine monks. Um, a community like CSF could create a rule of life and say, this is who we are as followers of Jesus, and this is how we want to live. This is what it's going to look like. A rule of life could be something that maybe you and a couple of friends, like people who are deep-spirited friends who you're doing life with and trying to follow Jesus with, that you would get together and say, hey, let's, let's talk about this. Like, how do we want to intentionally live? Or maybe it's just something that you do individually, similar to like a New Year's resolution. It's saying, I want to follow the pattern of Jesus, and this is what it's going to look like in my life. It's making a decision to live our lives on purpose instead of slowly, subtly being shaped and formed by the world. So tonight, um, we're starting this off. And uh, everybody got a booklet on your chair, a little rule of life booklet. We hope that you will bring that back. Keep it. Don't lose it. We have extras if you do. But um, use it to take notes in that. And what we're going to be doing is every week kind of building this rule of life. We're not going to figure it all out in this tonight. We may not figure it all out in four weeks, but we're going to start thinking about it. We're going to start building some pieces of a rule of life. Um, Tonight, we're going to look at one of the patterns of Jesus, um, and it's the pattern of being unhurried. Jesus was unhurried. I think if we're honest, it's easy for most of us, I'm guessing, to feel like we're busier than everybody else or that our life is more complicated than everybody else. Maybe we look at our roommates and we think, well, they don't even have a job, (laughs) you know. Um, We see people that don't have the same kinds of issues or the same kinds of schedules that we do and, and we feel like our lives are busier. And sometimes maybe we would even think that Jesus can't understand because his life wasn't that busy. What did he do all day? He like walked around and went to parties and went to church and taught some stuff, right? 
The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, are, are the biographies of Jesus that we have in Scripture, and, and that's where we see the stories of Jesus, right, how he lived. And tonight, we're just going to look at a few snapshots. There are tons of stories, lots and lots of things that we can learn about Jesus' life, but I want to look at a few of those snapshots tonight um, just to get kind of a reality check about Jesus' life and about his patterns. Jesus, first of all, had lots of demands on his time. Uh, we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I think that some of us who have read this before, maybe grew up like in Sunday school reading this, just have kind of thought like, well, Jesus was super holy, and so this holy people like to get up early in the morning in the dark and go and pray. I think Jesus had to do this. He had to do it because his life was so full. People wanted his attention all the time. If he was going to have any kind of time to listen to the, to the Father, if he was going to have any time alone to pray, he had to get up before everybody else in his house and sneak out in the dark to a quiet place. I don't think he did it because he was holy, because he wanted to. I think he did it because he had to. Because this is a pattern that the priority was spending time with the Father, and that's what it took. He had lots of demands on his time. Secondly, he had demands on his attention. Um, everyone wanted time with Jesus. Like, the crowds around Jesus were so thick. We read, like, story after story where he would, like, get in a boat to escape, and he'd go kind of across, across the lake to another place, and as soon as he got out of the boat and people spotted him, people would come and flock to him there, right? Just from place to place to place. In uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 4, we read the story of some friends of a paralyzed man who are so desperate to get their friend to Jesus that they take matters into their own hands. Um, in verse 4, it says, Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat to the man, uh, the, the man on the mat. Wait, no. They lowered the mat the man was lying on. I mean, there are days when I feel really busy. I feel like people are always trying to get at me, right? You're, like, email is constantly, and people are texting you, and people are asking you for things. When you're a mom, that's like, they're, like, actually, like, grabbing onto you physically. But never have I, like, been in my house and had somebody climbing through the windows to get to me, right? Never have I experienced that kind of, of clamor for my attention. Jesus understood what it, what it was like to have people wanting your attention. Third, I think um, we see that Jesus had to respond to other people's demanding expectations. Everybody had expectations about what Jesus should be doing. They had opinions about what should be important. I mean, even the disciples are trying to boss Jesus and tell him, like, hey, we need to go here. You shouldn't be hanging out with those kids. Or, you know, everybody had expectations that they tried to put on Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, we see how Jesus responds to this craziness um, when people are crowding him and directing him and requesting things of him, all with their expectations of how he should handle things. In this passage that I'm going to read, um, 
Jesus has already had like a series of interactions with people. He's just come from healing um, a demonic man who was like living naked in tomb in these tombs and no one could do anything about it. And Jesus goes and um, heals him. And then we pick this up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was there. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus. Remember, that's where we were supposed to be in the beginning. We were supposed to be going to the dying child before we got distracted by this. And they came to him and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Okay? So many things wanting Jesus' attention. So many people. But Jesus doesn't listen and they continue to go on. They go on to the girl's home. Verse 41, we're going to jump down there. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I love that he said, like, give her something to eat. I, th- I think about, I think if I, when I am stressed out and like trying to do a hundred things at once, um, I don't do a very good job of finishing any of them, right? Of like sitting with any of them. And I think this is like Jesus kind of finishing. Like I healed her and now I'm really going to like go the extra mile and just say, hey, she may need something to eat. Would you like get her a cheeseburger? You know, he wasn't in a hurry to go on to the next thing. He was fully present in the moment. He was fully present with the bleeding woman. Even though there was so much going on around, he was fully present with the girl. Can you feel the stress in the story of, like, the expectation of others? All of the things that you need to do, could do, should do, ought to do, I feel it as a mom and a wife and a campus minister and a friend and a daughter, I know that you guys feel it as students and employees and children and siblings. We all feel pressed for time and feel pressed for our attention and we all feel the weight of other people's expectations. And yet with everything pulling at Jesus, he never appeared stressed 
or frantic or burned out. He didn't get flustered or overwhelmed. Jesus knew how he was going to live his life. He knew what the priorities were going to be for his life and for his ministry and for his day. He knew what would take priority in his schedule. He knew what he needed in order to be healthy and in order to do the things that the Father had given him to do. And he made a conscious decision to live differently than what every, everyone else thought he should be doing. He had a pattern for his life. Jesus had a rule of life that he followed. And it's the same pattern that he invites us to follow. The beginning of a semester is a really good time to take kind of an inventory. This semester, this year, doesn't have to look like last year. It doesn't have to be the same. The stuff that was really, really hard last year doesn't have to affect you the same way. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, remembering how much God loves you, remembering how good God is, that he wants to be your friend, in view of that, don't live like everybody else is living, crammed into a glass box, stunted, but instead allow God to transform your life into something following the pattern of Jesus. I love the message translation of um, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and these are the words of Jesus. I just want, just maybe close your eyes if you don't think it's too weird, and just listen to this kind of wash over you. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Does that sound good to anybody else? That's what it's about. That's what Jesus came to do for us. That's what life can be like this semester if we decide to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to follow the pattern of Jesus. And it's not going to come uh, just by coming to CSF on Monday. I mean, I hope you do. I think it will help. I think it's a good thing. It won't happen just by trying hard, uh, but it comes with a choice. It comes with a decision about how we're going to live. In the same way that I'm not going to become a runner uh, without a plan and without actually running, and I'm not going to lose weight uh, without actually doing something different, <laughs> just by thinking it and wishing it, um, it's an intentional decision to live life on purpose a different way. And one way that we can do this is to begin thinking about a rule of life. And like I said, we're not going to figure it all out tonight, um, but we're going to be talking about creating this over the next four weeks. 
So the first piece in our rule of life has to do with living by the pattern of Jesus when it comes to your time. Have any of you done like a, um, a time audit or a time inventory for a class? Anybody had a teacher that do, does that? Um, I know for a while there were some um, of the Cap Scholar classes that were doing this, just to give you an idea of like how much time you actually have in your day. The idea is um, to like record, you know, maybe in 15 minute increments, everything that you do um, with your day. And the point is to look and, and see what are the patterns that I'm already following in my day? What are the habits that I already have? This week, this is going to be the challenge, um, is I'd like everybody to find three days this week that you will do an inventory of your time, an audit. And maybe that means that you just write some things down in a journal, or you, if, if you're a spreadsheet kind of person, you can do that too. Um, it might look something like this. Uh, 15 minutes making coffee in the morning. 30 minutes on social media or sports center. One hour working out. Two hours of TV shows. Two hours in the student union with friends. Uh, an hour of shopping online. You know, this is what, just like making just a little list of this is what I did. This is how much time I actually started, you know, studied. This is keeping track of that just to see what kinds of patterns already exist in our lives that maybe we weren't even aware of. Um, Abigail did this last semester, and uh, so I asked her to come up and just share like, what her experience was, how she did this, and uh, maybe that'll help inspire you um, this week. Last September, Lindsay challenged me to do an uh, assessment of my life, this time audit, to see where I was spending my time and discover patterns in my life. I was struggling with self-discipline, and I didn't really know how to start on improving that. I didn't know how to add healthy habits in my life or how to get rid of bad habits. And a good place to start um, in order to do all of that was to first become aware of how I was currently using my time. So what that looked like for me was literally writing everything out I did in a day in a journal um, for an entire week. I'd make notes on my phone so I didn't forget anything. And then at the end of, the, um, at the end of each day, I would write everything out. I tried to make a, new, a few notes as well on how I was feeling throughout the day. So if I was feeling particularly uh, distracted or tired, I'd make note of that to see if there's any patterns there. Um, by the end of the week, I did a lot of math, which was surprisingly really fun. Um, I calculated the total amount of hours that I tracked my activities for. And then from that amount of hours, I calculated percentages for the most common activities that I did throughout the week. So I found out that I spent 30% of the week sleeping. That's about seven to nine hours a night. With the 70% remaining waking hours, I spent 18.5% of my time doing homework, about two to three hours per day, 16% of my time on social activities, such as attending events, 28% of my time watching some sort of entertainment, so that includes YouTube, movies, TV shows, that sort of thing, and 7% of my time on restful activities. After doing all these calculations, I journaled through some reflection and just kind of thought about what I wanted to change in my schedule now that I had all this data and I could see it. Um, I knew I wanted to cut down on watching things because with the calculations, it 
it came out to be a quarter of my day on average was spent um, consuming some sort of content. I knew I wanted to have more private time with God and I wanted to work on adding more social activities into my schedule. And I could see now at, from doing um, this activity how that was possible. I could see what I needed to work on and see that, that I could actually do it. I knew I could sleep at more practical hours and cut down on entertainment each day and that would free up time for these other things I wanted to value like social activities and spiritual habits. And I, I found that even on days when it felt like I was really busy, there was really a lot of time that I could have been using better. And um, if you do have any questions about this process or anything like that, uh, I'd love for you to talk to me. Reach out at some point. Um, I'd love to talk more about this. And I think it would be really interesting and beneficial to do this practice again um, to see how much I've changed my habits since last semester or to see where I can continue to improve. Um, but this wasn't about adding more to my schedule for me. It wasn't about uh, having the best schedule that I could or fitting the most in. My heart behind this really was just to be aware of how my time was spent. I think uh, God entrusts us with so many things and time is one of them. And how we use our time says a lot about what we value and care about. I also think how disciplined we are says a lot about our integrity and how much we value those things God entrusts us with. I realized doing this assessment that one of the reasons I struggled with self-discipline was due to a fear of failure. I thought that even if I tried my best to change, that I would find that I was somehow incapable of forming good habits. Um, I think the problem there was really that I wasn't trusting God to empower me through the process. Um, I think time management and self-discipline are important, but trusting God and leaning on him through the process towards a healthier lifestyle is essential. So if he were a college student at UIS, what kinds of things would Jesus do? That's, that's what we're called to do in following Jesus. A square watermelon is like super cool, right? Like very unique and quirky, but it's gonna cost you and it's not gonna taste very good. It's never gonna ripen. It's never gonna be juicy. It'll be stunted. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. God has intended us to be something very different. Um, very different than what the world wants us to be. And so don't conform to the mold that the world wants to put you in, but instead we're going to follow the patterns of Jesus to live freely, to find rest in all the things that he promises us. So I'm excited to do this with you guys for the next four weeks. Um, and we want to make this kind of interactive, and so every week we're probably going to do something like this tonight. Um, we're going to have a couple minutes for you to take some time to do some thinking and some reflecting before we move on. So you've got your book for that reason. Um, I want you to think about these two questions. What patterns am I following in my life currently? So already, even before you do this time audit, you can probably think of some patterns that you have in your life. Do you check sports scores before you get out of bed in the morning? Do you pray before you leave the house? 
Do you brush your teeth after eating? Like all of those are patterns. What are some patterns that you can already identify that you have in your life? And secondly, what is a pattern that could help me be more like Jesus? And as I say that, I I just want to, to make it really clear that what we're not trying to do is to add a bunch of guilt and to dump a bunch of stuff on you to do. That is not what Jesus promises. You know, that, that when we, we read that passage, Jesus' words, where the, the, I, I'm not going to put anything heavy on you. What I want is your good. What I want is the very best for you. So what is, what is a pattern that can help me be like Jesus so that I can experience real rest, so that I can have the kind of life that God wants to give me? Does that make sense? So take a couple minutes, think about those things, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to have you turn around to one or two other people around you, and you're not going to move your chairs because we'll get in trouble. Um, But just to share something, you can choose how much you want to share, but to share like a pattern that you already know about or a pattern of Jesus that you think will help. Um, So take a couple minutes. Mm -hmm.